Today we're going to be in Romans chapter 12. Um, I, l- I looked back at my uh, notes from last year, and I actually ended up preaching on the same week that we had this family meeting and everything going on, and uh, that week I, I, I decided to tackle the entire book of Jonah. And so uh, I tried to go a little easier on us this morning and just cover three verses from Romans uh, chapter 12. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, looking at specifically at verses 3 through 5. So if you would, please stand as we give attention to this shorter reading of God's Word. Romans 12, verses 3 through 5. Says, for, the, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for this time, for this gathering of your church. We are here because of your grace reaching down and calling us to yourself. Thank you for this time to to look to you, to get our eyes back towards you in a world that is constantly offering us to give our attention to lesser things. It is good to be reminded of the one that we worship and how much you have done for us. So I just pray now as we look into your word in these uh, simple words that were penned so long ago, delivered to the believers in Rome, that even yet today hold such truth such relevance and such importance for us even here. So I pray that you would guide us as we look into this uh, through your spirit, help us to see and understand the truths that you have for us, uh, shape us together through this, and help us to be the people that you have called us to be. So we commit this time to you, and we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You all can have a seat. As I get started, I actually want to just... uh, share with you uh, just a moment of honesty. Um, hopefully this doesn't offend uh, any of you, but I know that we have been inviting you all to uh, come and join in this potluck lunch that we're having after the service today. I need to really be honest that uh, I actually don't really like potluck lunches. Not, not a huge fan. I know some of you might, might love it, think it's the best thing, but they're not my favorite thing. And there's a couple reasons why. I, the main reason is this, that uh, I've always been a fairly picky eater, and uh, especially, there's one thing that I despise, it's onions. I hate onions. I, I know Chad will agree with me on this. We got any other onion haters in here? Maybe A few, yes, see? See, it's not that uncommon. But uh, for, for those that like onions, they think they're like totally normal and fine, and so they can go into anything. And so they just get hidden and, and kind of mixed into all sorts of different dishes and things. So when it comes to a potluck lunch, like a whole line of casseroles to me just looks like Russian roulette for the onions. <laughs> like, like, where are they going to be? Is it in that pasta? Is it in the potatoes? Where are they? And uh, so, so if you think that I'm going to kind of risk it on your amazing dish, as, as great of a cook as you may be, uh, it's not going to happen today. So I'm going to look for my wife's food or I'm going to look for the bucket of chicken, right? <laughs> so so that, that's one reason. You know, I, I don't know, I, I just feel like onions should make it on the list with like gluten, you know, whenever we, we say, say when something is gluten-free, shouldn't, can't we also say like onion-free? Um, I don't know, maybe that's just me. Um, the other reason is that I, I just don't 
really like kind of mixing my food genres. I feel like foods should just kind of stay in their lane, right? Like, I don't need my, my enchiladas kind of rubbing up against my lasagna and the red sauce, you know? I just don't, those things don't really mix very well. So can we just, like, eat the same food? But nonetheless, um, there is actually one thing that I, I do like about potlucks. The one thing that I actually really like about potlucks is that they are a beautiful image of what and how the church, the body of Christ, should operate. If you think about it, everybody comes and brings something different, brings something different to the table, and yet everybody gets fed and gets filled. And it's not always by the thing that you bring, but often by something else that someone else brings. And so this morning, I want together in just this short time to draw our attention to this text and and cause us hopefully to consider how we think about our role and our contribution in the body of Christ. So if you're familiar at all with the book of Romans, then you know that uh, chapter 12 marks this dramatic shift in the content of the book. Uh, Chapters 1 through 11 have been spent really just giving this this extended, in-depth theological discussion on on, on the gospel, unpacking the implications of the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. But here in chapter 12 and on to the end of the book, it has a much more practical focus, really calling the the Christian to to live in a certain way, to live in light of the truths that have already been laid out in those first 11 chapters. And so Paul here starts this chapter in verses 1 and 2, and I wanted to preach this, but for time I I had had to kind of focus it down. But but in verses 1 and 2, Paul calls the Christian to to respond to this. He gives them this appeal. He says, in light of the mercies of God, the the grace of God that's been poured out to you, what has been accomplished, the righteousness of Christ that has been given to you, in light of that, there is only one reasonable, rational response to that. It's to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. As God is in Christ has, has offered himself and sacrificed himself for us, the only reasonable response is to offer our lives back to him. And so, so in offering ourselves back to, to, to him, Paul then tells us how we are to be reshaped. We're not to be shaped by this world, conformed to its values and, and, and its system, but rather we are to be those who are being transformed, constantly being changed And he says specifically into new ways of thinking, language he uses by the renewal of our mind. And so here in this text, we are instructed on how this new way of thinking will be manifested in the Christian life. So I think Paul here shows us two areas where we need to change how we think. And those two areas are this. He says we need to shift how we think about ourselves and we need to expand how we think about the church. So he says, he calls us first to to shift how we think about ourselves. So in verse 3, he establishes the grounds for what he's going to tell them. He says this, by the grace given to me, this is language that Paul uses elsewhere to really refer to his appointment and, and calling as an apostle. So here he speaks as one who is commissioned by Christ. He says, from the authority entrusted to him, and who does he speak to? He says, to everyone among you, this is a command for all Christians, for all of us. He says that in light of who you are now, if you are those who have offered yourselves as a sacrifice back to God, 
Meaning, ultimately, that you have, you have put to death your right to live as you choose because you belong to another. Then he tells them how you view yourself has to change. And so he tells them this. He says, you are not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but rather to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith God has assigned. I love the way another translation tries to draw out the sense of this, this call. It says, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. So let's, let's quickly unpack this. It tells us, don't think more of yourselves than you should. So this is certainly a warning against just the, the natural, common experience and struggle with pride that we all possess, but it's actually far more than that, and the answer is far deeper. It's actually a call to shift the way that you actually see yourself, how you determine your value. See, the measure by which you give assessment of yourself actually has to be adjusted. And what does he say? He says, the only way to have this correct view of yourself is through what he calls sober judgment or sober thinking. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know that sobriety ultimately means to be, to be in your right mind, to be sane, to have a clear head, to be able to have an objective view, to have an honest assessment and evaluation of yourself. How many of us are actually honest with ourselves? And so, the question then becomes, how do we get there? How do we begin to have this sobriety, this honest uh, view of ourselves? And I think the first thing is this. The first way that we begin to get there is this, that we, we have to recognize that our tendency is the thing that Paul warns us against. Our natural tendency is to think more highly of ourselves than we should, right? Our natural thinking is self-centered thinking. This is at the, at the core of the human ego. One philosopher and writer describes it like this, that, that the human ego is just this kind of empty hole within us that's always trying to fill itself up, to try and build a sense of, of worth and a sense of meaning apart from God. But when we realize that there's, there's a hole in us that only can be filled by God, we realize that we can never actually fill it up. But we long to behold glory. We long for something to worship when we often look to within ourselves for the answer to that. And that's why pride, an inflated view of ourselves, is so appealing, right? Because it actually offers to us the hope of, of filling that longing for glory and ultimate purpose in ourselves. It's the natural human tendency. And the first thing we have to do is recognize that that is how we are typically wired in our own natural condition, to think more highly of ourselves than we should. So if we first recognize that, then I think Paul encourages us that we actually have to change the measure by which we evaluate ourselves, right? So we first have to recognize that in ourselves, and then we have to change the measurement by which we continue to assess ourselves. So if you think about it, what is the common standard that we use to kind of assess ourselves, to determine our value and worth. What's that common standard? It's others, right? It's other people around us. 
It's those we rub shoulders with, those we sit next to in church, those we work with, those we play with. C.S. Lewis, uh, really helpfully in his, book, in his classic work, Mere Christianity, uh, says this. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or better looking than others, but if everyone else became equally rich, clever, or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Is that not so true? I love how uh, you can see in kids things that oftentimes you're blind to in your own selves. A few weeks ago, uh, my, my, my youngest son was, was playing with uh, one of his friends out, out in the garage and in the street, and uh, my kids have been, a lot of times, running around the street on their scooters. And uh, my youngest son, he has a scooter, and he's out there on his scooter, but his friend doesn't have a scooter. So Brecken feels pretty cool, good about himself, that, that he has something, and his friend doesn't have it, his friend wants to borrow it and wants to use it, and, uh, and he, he, he's enjoying the fact that he has a scooter and his friend doesn't. But then two days later, his friend comes over again, and he just got himself a scooter. And one of the first things that he says is, is he's, he's showing it to, to Brecken. He Brecken, look at, look at my scooter. He says, my scooter's better than yours because it has flames on it. <laughs> right? Like, like they could, couldn't just enjoy the fact that now they both have scooters. He has to compare and say, say look, my scooter is better than yours. Isn't that how we always do? We, we compare ourselves to others. And when other people are the standard by which we actually assess our own value, what we end up doing is one of two things. We either end up then trying, you know, because inevitably somebody else is going to come along that's better looking, that's smarter than you, that is more successful, that, that has things pulled together, right? So we either find, find things to criticize in them, we have to try to tear them down to, to try to lift ourselves up, or, or, or we try even harder just to kind of make ourselves better. We work out harder to look better, to be fitter. Or we, or we try to work harder at the job to, to make more money and be more successful. And, and we wrestle with that. Or on the other side, some people go the other way. In their effort to compare themselves and find value and build up their own self-image, sometimes they actually see that they can never measure up. And they actually then begin to despise themselves. Viewing themselves as worthless because they can't measure up to others. Everyone else is always so much better at everything else than them. They're good, better looking than them. They're more spiritually strong. They're more gifted. I have nothing to offer. And other people may end up loathing themselves. And you, we see in that tension that, that the correction to an inflated view of ourselves is actually not a deflated view of ourselves. But it's actually, as Paul is trying to call us to, to change the standard by which we actually use to assess ourselves. And what does Paul tell us? He says that, that sober thinking is done how? According to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does he, what does he mean by this, this measure of faith that God has given I don't think he's merely just speaking about faith as, as kind of the body of doctrine and, and, and belief in God that we hold, but it is a, a reference to the, the way that God has given a different gifting to different people in the church and the faith through which they can exercise that. I, I think a way we could say it is this, he's, that Paul is saying, think about yourself in relation to the calling 
and the gifts that you have been given by God. Isn't that interesting? Are we we saying change the, the standard by which you assess yourselves? Saying your value is determined by God's sovereign choosing of you, by his gifting of you, and his placing you into the community through which he is actually using you and everyone else around you to actually display his glory in the world. And so if we understand what Paul is saying, we we begin to realize that the key to growing in true humility is not by devaluing ourselves. It's not through some kind of self-deprecating form of, of humbleness, but rather a true and accurate view of ourselves is found in looking to someone who is far greater than us, who has bestowed his grace upon us, who declares our value and has designed our place and our purpose. There's a great little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And in that, it says this one phrase that's always stuck with me. It says, the gospel humility is, is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Did you get that? It's, it's not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Because you see, the, the, the person who is inflated in their own ego and the person who is self-loathing are actually doing the very same thing. They're looking at themselves to determine their value and their worth. Paul is saying, assess yourselves based on how God has designed you, gifted, and called you into his plan and purpose for which he has for you. Which is so interesting how he then attaches this idea to what he says next in verse 4. So he's calling us saying, you have to reshape the way that you think about yourself, not in the normal categories that you, that you do, but by God's assessment and determination of you. And he says that then in so doing, you also need to expand how you think of the church. And he ultimately is saying that how we think of ourselves will be shaped by how we view the body of Christ. The grounds for the charge for this proper view of self here in verse 4, is actually then given as a holistic understanding of the church. He offers us this simple illustration. Verse 4, For all, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. He's given an illustration. We all know that we experience our life in, in, in our physical human body. And we also very clearly recognize that our body has different parts. We have hands, we have feet, we have noses. And all of those parts form different functions, right? That's his point. It's, it's, it's not complicated. He uses the same illustration when he, when he writes to the Corinthians. And there he goes into some little fuller detail, giving these kind of absurd situations, saying like, the, the nose can't say to the eye, I don't need you, because uh, then, then you could, the body couldn't see. And then the hand and the feet can't, can't compete against each other. And, then, and the focus is that, that, that in order for the body to function, it needs all the different parts performing their function together for the health of the body. So he gives that image, that illustration, and then he says and applies it to the body of Christ. And he says this, So we, or in the same way, we, meaning the church, are many, but we are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So you see how he gives three very distinct ideas and concepts 
to describe the body of Christ, to describe the church. He says it's one body, it has many members, and it is one of another. Right? One body, many members, one of another. And we have to understand all these different as- these three aspects of the church if we're going to get what Paul is calling us to. He says it is one body. There is only one true church. Historically, this has been referred to as the universal church or even uh, sometimes the invisible church. Those who are truly a part of the body of Christ are those who have placed their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the only means to atone for their sin. They're those who truly know that they have no righteousness in and of themselves, but that which has been given to them because of the perfect life of Jesus. That they have not earned their place into the church, but it has been given to them. As Paul said to the Ephesians, for by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God to you. Even the faith to believe is a gift given to you. And so that reminds us all that attending this Sunday gathering, giving to this religious organization, uh, attending a life group, serving in whatever capacity that you may find, none of that actually makes you a part of the body of Christ. But only as the finished work of Jesus is applied to you by faith, does that have the power to place you in Christ and unite you as a part of His body, His church? And so then us as a local church, as we gather regularly as as kind of a visible expression, manifestation of, of, of God's universal church, when we come together, the membership that makes up this church is those who confess that Jesus is their Lord, He is their Savior, who have been baptized in accordance with Jesus' command to publicly declare that faith, that they belong to Him. And then together, we commit together to live alongside of one another and to live out the calling that God has placed for us. But this church, the church, is not something that we have created or anything that we can do to create, but it is something that God has made, something that He has gathered to Himself. So it's one body, but it also is composed of many members. Just as our bodies have all these different parts with different functions, so too the body of Christ. It's composed of different members who are each designed to serve different roles. There is this beautiful diversity in the body of Christ, but what the text highlights is that it's not just diversity for diversity's sake. It's not just a surface focus on different types of people but the focus is on the diverse and the necessary function of all the different parts of the body. So if we see that, if we begin to understand that, do we then believe, do you believe, that you, as a part of Christ's church, and maybe as a part of this local body, have a role to play? Do you actually think about the church When it comes together in all its different forms, do you think about the church that it is not just a service that you are invited to observe, but it is actually a community in which you are called to participate? Are you continuing to grow in your understanding of of the ways that God has gifted you, seeking ways in which you can actually use those gifts in the context of the life of the church? Or do you see the church merely as an organization that exists to provide a service to you. 
I think sometimes we are tempted in our kind of consumeristic culture to begin to kind of see the church less as a living organism, that we are actually a, a living part of, and we actually begin to see it as something else, maybe more like a robot. Maybe some of you have one of those saucer robot vacuums in your house. Maybe even now it's scheduled to, to drive around and vacuum your floor while you're gone this morning so you can go home and have a nice clean floor when you get back home. It does all the work for you, right? That's what makes robots nice, why they're going to take over the world, why AI is the biggest threat to us. But sometimes I think we can tend to start thinking about church and ch all the churches in town as kind of just organizations that are designed and programmed to do something for me so that I actually don't have to do much. I need a little spiritual pick-me-up so I can go to church or I can join this Bible study for a little extra social gathering. Um, kind of whatever I feel the need for, you know, the, that, that's why churches exist. They exist to kind of provide this for me. Do we actually see ourselves as one of the members, a part of the body that, that is designed and intended by God to serve and fulfill a specific role? And then do we all equally value the parts of the body? Or do we kind of elevate one over another, think that some are more important than others, minimize ourselves because we don't really have very many gifts to offer? But man, that other person, they're, they're pretty impressive. You see, when we do actually value our own design, when, when we receive it and think about ourselves in light of the way that God has made us, and we actually then value the way that God has made other people, that actually frees us from this tyranny of this comparison game that we are always constantly drawn into. And it's only then can we actually begin to embrace the unique ways that God is using all of us for His purposes. That way, if you, if you see another brother or sister who's just incredibly gifted, and they're just like, they, they know the word so well, they know how to, how to speak truth, and they, they're, they're so studied on, on a certain thing. Rather than, than feeling, you know, so impressed by them, we can actually learn from them in relationship. We can actually value that. When we see another brother or sister who is just incredibly patient and giving, it just seems like they have this huge capacity just to love and to serve and always doing things. We're like, we can't even hardly hold things together. Like, like we, we can value that in them rather than compare ourselves with them. We have to recognize the body is one but is made of many members, all uniquely designed and gifted by God for His specific purpose. And lastly, He calls us to see that this body, that of many members, he uses this last phrase, those members are one of another. Other translations say they are members who belong to each other. You see, there is this interdependent design in the body of Christ. God actually intended it to be the formative context for us to grow and be shaped into the image of Christ. What did he write to the Ephesians? Paul said, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, when each part is doing its part, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's ultimately the vision and the design is that the community is intended to be the formative means by which he is growing us into this beautiful picture that is the body of Christ. 
And so the question for us is, do you view your spiritual life as kind of merely just a personal thing that you kind of do on your own? Or do you believe that you actually belong to a community of people that God has redeemed you into and has united you with? See, for us at The Crossing, we, we've tried to establish some, some, some tangible rhythms through which this, this spiritual reality is actually lived out. Every week as we come together and worship together in our Sunday gathering, it's a time for us to co- collectively see the, the unity that we share, the one body of Christ that is this, as we look to Him, as we proclaim His glory, as we remind ourselves of the gospel and that which actually unites us to each other. And we also have our life group communities, which is... Why every week we continue to encourage you, get in, involved in a life group. Because we believe that, that, that we need this, that you need others in your life who can know you, who can, who can actually speak into your life, who can be honest with you. That we can grow and sharpen one another. And we have, we have no delusions that our life groups are the perfect way to do it or the, the perfect representation of what a gospel community looks like. They have all their flaws and deficiencies and, and challenges. But as we are empowered by the work of the Spirit, our hope is that we can begin to grow and reflect the kingdom of God to this world that God intends for His church to be. So do you actually believe that you need others? Or do you have it all figured out? Do you need others to actually grow in your understanding of truth? To go deeper to, to be challenged to, to read the Word, to understand it, and understand the way that it applies to all areas of life? Or are you okay with just kind of your, your simple faith? You don't, need to, you don't need to grow. You don't need to really dig into the Word. Do you need others to help you grow deeper, to grow on to maturity? Do you actually need others to bear the burdens of life, or can you just shoulder it all on yourself? Do you need others to encourage you when you're struggling? to care for you in that moment of weakness? Do you need others to actually at times maybe tell you when you're wrong, to bring correction, to help you see things more clearly and more biblically? Do you think of God's church as a place that you have been divinely placed into? That in a very real sense, you have a purpose and a, a place that only you can fulfill? And do you ever consider that God has called you and maybe placed you here, not just so that you can grow, but so that maybe someone else might be challenged to grow, be encouraged, and cared for through you? This is the design of Christ's church. One body, many members. And we belong to each other. And only as we grow in a, in a fuller understanding of God's purpose for us here can we begin to reshape the standard by which we actually assess our own value and our own worth. And only as we, we gain the freedom from our self-centered thinking in which we use others to bolster our own self-image can we actually be freed to serve each other and to genuinely serve alongside of one another. So if you're here today and you're not part of the body of Christ, you actually haven't placed your faith in Him, you've been searching and seeking and, and, and seeking to discern about this Jesus guy, the offer of the free grace of God's righteousness given to you is offered to you. Because of what Christ has done, He offers it to you to, to receive it, to put your faith 
in the finished work of Christ alone and allow him to unite you to his body. Maybe you're here and you've been here for a while and you feel like you serve a lot and you are getting after it. You've served in life group, you've led life group, you've, you've cared and, and led children's ministry and done, done everything for years. My encouragement is keep doing it. Stay after it. We need you. We need those with high capacity, with a heart to serve, who, who, who are understanding it, who, who get it, who want to be used and exercise their gifts. Keep after it. I'm not saying burn yourself out, but don't start, don't start thinking and, and, and focusing and inflating yourself by all the things that you do and then criticizing everyone else. Just humbly receive the gifting that God has given you. And continue to use those in the church to serve and to build up and care for others. Maybe you're here and you maybe have just been more observing. Sitting on the sideline. Not sure where to get involved, how to care. Might I just challenge you and call you to step up. To get involved. To invest your time, your resources a little bit of your schedule for others. Make a commitment to a life group and see what God will do through that in your own life. Even if it's weird at first, even if it's awkward, maybe there's a community that God is actually going to use to shape you, but actually might use you to actually shape and form into something that looks more like his kingdom. Don't minimize your gifting. Don't neglect the gifts that God has given you but recognize that your value is determined by God and how He has made you and what He has called you to do and to be. We don't have time for it, but verse 6, he, he gives this one final charge. He says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We all have different gifts. We all have different wirings. All made by God in different ways. He says, Having gifts that differ, let us use them. Let us use them. Let's not waste the gifts that God has given us, but let us use them not for ourselves, but for His glory and ultimately for our joy. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word, for this passage, the encouragement that is here for us, that we don't have to spend our lives trying to find our value and worth in and of ourselves. But because of the work of Jesus and your work in our lives, you have placed us into the body of Christ alongside of one another. And it's here that we find our ultimate value and our ultimate worth as those who are called as your sons and daughters, gifted by your spirit, and called to be a light in this world. I pray that we would take this charge and find areas in which we can step up, in which we can grow alongside of one another, in which we can invest in each other's lives, to push each other on, to know and love Jesus more. And as we do that, we know that this church and your church all around the world can be a transformative influence on our culture, our society, and this world. It's for your glory that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.